Can you believe that? Adam just mentioned it, and I don't know if you are keeping track, but Easter is three Sundays away, so I hope that uh, you are preparing for that. Uh, if this is your first week with us, my name is Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And if you are watching online, thank you for joining us there. It is my hope that uh, if you are in the area and able, that you will soon join us here uh, in the big room. So I hope to see you here. Uh, and I'm just double-checking, but I want to make sure that everyone knows that our times have changed for Easter weekend, right? Do we all know that? So Saturday night, uh, we have a, a 7 o'clock service, and then on Sunday morning, we're doing 9 and 11. So this service stays at 11. If you were to come earlier, it will be at 9, 9 o'clock. And Adam mentioned on your handout this great little uh, invite card. So if you would, go ahead and pull your notes out. If you've got the handout, go ahead and pull this out. And then just kind of fold that and tear on the perforated line. Man, I'm telling you, that's one of the best feelings in the world, just tearing on the perforated line. Makes you feel like a million bucks. And if you're feeling weak, it makes you feel strong. Uh, so, uh, listen, that's not for you, by the way. That, that is for you to give to a friend so that as you invite them to Easter, they have something as a save the date. They have the times, and, uh, and that, that would be great. So, uh, and if they're good with it, by the way, when you bring your friend on Easter... One of the things that I loved, I love meeting folks that you bring, your friends, your family members. Would you, I'd love to meet them that morning. So if you would, uh, if they're okay with that, that'd be wonderful. So, all right. So I have a guess, and my guess is that everyone here has been on an elevator that bears his name. So when I say elevator, what name do you think of? Otis Elevators. They have been the industry standard for 150 years, it is estimated that the equivalent of the world's population traver, travels on an Otis elevator, escalator, or moving walkway every three days. Population of the world, three days. Otis elevators are the primary means of vertical transportation in some of the world's tallest, most famous buildings, including Eiffel Tower, Sears Tower, as well as the Empire State Building. I don't know if you knew this or not, Otis did not invent the elevator. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, the Greek mathematician Archimedes uh, created a primitive elevator in 236 BC, so we know they go back at least that far. We'll just jump a little bit in elevator history. In 1743, Louis XV had what he referred to as the flying chair, which linked uh, his bedroom quarters with <clears throat> that of his mistress, uh, but, uh, but he had an elevator uh, in his house as well. By the mid-19th century, elevators powered by steam or water were available for uh, sale, but the ropes they were relying on for those elevators could be worn out or destroyed and were not therefore generally used as public transportation. They, people wouldn't get on it. O, uh, Elisha Otis came along, and he knew what to do. He knew what it needed. It needed a reliable braking system. And so he designed one. But nobody would buy it because they didn't trust it yet. And so he did something no one else had ever done. At the 1853 World's Fair at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in New York City, he went up and onto a platform that had been sent up as an elevator with the crowd watching. Otis ordered the only rope holding that platform to be cut by an axeman. And the elevator shook but didn't drop. Uh, not only did the braking system stop his free fall, 
it sent scale, uh, sales skyrocketing. So today, that's why today Otis Elevator Company holds a majority share in production and installment of modern elevators and escalators around the world because he was brave enough to stand on top of an elevator several floors up and allow the rope to be cut and he wouldn't drop. Listen on your notes, that's why I put this there. Faith is climbing out on a limb, cutting it off, and watching the tree fall. That's what Otis, what Elisha Otis, is, Otis did. He climbed out on a limb, cut it off, and watched the tree fall. So today we're going to see in the miracle we have, uh, we, we love to read about this, I think in part because it feels like the limb gets cut, and we're waiting to see if the tree is actually going to fall. So John chapter 6 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that. Uh, if you have the Version app, where we have our notes there as well. So let's check this out together, John chapter 6, beginning verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And the strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Immediately before this is what we looked at last week. So if you have your Bible open, if you're looking at John 6, just, on t just above this is the feeding of the multitudes. We call it the feeding of the 5,000, although that only included uh, counting the men, did not include women and children. Uh, Jesus fed them from a little boy's lunch of five fish, or two, I was getting ready to say it backwards again. Five loaves and two fish. And by the way, if you missed that message last week, I hope you'll go to our website and check that out. Verses 16 and 17 say, when evening came, so that night, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Matthew tells us uh, why they did that. You ready? Look at Matthew 14, 22. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So they didn't just wander down. He actually told them to go do that. So on your notes, I want to make sure you get this. Sometimes I'm where I am because I'm doing what Jesus said. And it's not necessarily a comfortable place, but I am where I am because I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. Sometimes we're where we are because we didn't do what Jesus said. Or sometimes we're where we are because we did something Jesus said not to do. And we find ourselves in these situations. We've seen it play out in our own lives. We've seen it play out in the lives of our family and our friends. And so let me ask you this obvious question on this. Do you think Jesus knew the storm was coming? He sent his followers into a boat onto the water. Did he know that the storm was coming? Because he was a carpenter, not a meteorologist. Not that it seems to make much different these days when predicting the weather. But uh, the advantage is uh, he's God and he controls the weather. So do you think he knew? And if so, why would he send them anyway? At least one reason is that after he feeds the multitude, John tells us something we didn't look at last week. He says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, hey, this guy would make a pretty good king. And they intended to come and make him king by force. And so Jesus withdrew again into the hills by himself. It is probable that Jesus was concerned that the 12 would have gotten caught up in the plans of the uh, crowd to start a political revolt. I mean, think about the positions of power that they would have held if Jesus became an earthly king, which at this point, they still thought he was going to do. That was kind of their idea. They didn't grasp the cross yet. They, they weren't 
picking up the clues that Jesus was laying down. So a position in an earthly kingdom for his closest followers would have been very persuasive, very wrong, but very persuasive. And it's probable that Jesus didn't want them to face that. So they did what Jesus said. Although my guess is they were also second-guessing what Jesus was asking them to do because they were already tired. They'd rowed across that very same body of water just that day. They had climbed up the side of a mountain. They had catered a meal for 5,000 at least people. And then they were the cleanup crew after the meal was over. And Jesus asks them if they would mind pulling a double shift uh, that day by rowing back across the Sea of Galilee. My guess is they were at the end of themselves. But it's at the end of yourself where God can show up and do something that no one else can, which is why this is on your notes. Everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to be in a situation that necessitates one. We're going to hold on to that for a moment because that's just a reminder. So Jesus sends them on across ahead of him, and when evening came, the boat was a considerable distance from shore. When Mark talks about this, he says they're about halfway across. John tells us they're three or four miles from shore. And in verse 18... It says, a strong wind was blowing and the waves grew rough. Now, I don't know if you know this, the low elevation of the Sea of Galilee, it has warmer air temperatures that lay on top of it. So it's not uncommon, uncommon for sudden storms to come sweeping down through the Jordan River Valley and just cause disruption on the sea. I also want you to keep in mind, there are seasoned fishermen in this boat. There are guys who know what they're doing in this boat. And yet the other Gospels offer this detail that make, gives the picture even more color. When Matthew, who was also in the boat, by the way, the tax collector in the boat, when he tells this story, he chooses his words carefully. He says the boat was buffeted by the waves. That means literally it was beaten. The word means beaten by the waves. In other words, the disciples were fighting a losing battle. I just want to stop there for a moment. Because while I don't know what's going on in everyone's life in the room right now, and if you're watching online, what's going on in your life right now, but it seems safe to say that there are people who are within earshot, and you are fighting what feels like a losing battle in your life right now. And maybe the losing battle you're fighting is cancer. I have a friend who is in the hospital right now fighting cancer. Or maybe it's you're fighting for your marriage. And there are days when you feel beaten by waves of discouragement. Or maybe you're drowning in a sea of debt, and it is a sinking feeling. I know that feeling, and maybe that's what you're feeling. Part of what John reminds us is that you cannot have a comeback without a setback. And so I told you this earlier because it was easier to hear a moment ago, but I will remind you of this again. Everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to be in a situation that actually necessitates a miracle. We all want smooth sailing. We all want to hug close to the shore in the boat. But that's not where miracles happen. So Mark uh, shares this detail in chapter 6. He says, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And he, who is he? Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. Okay, again, where was Jesus? He was on land. He was on terra firma, right? How did he see them? Did you know that the earth uh, curves uh, out of view, out of sight at a distance of 3.1 miles? Did you know that? Uh, how far away were the disciples at this point? John says three to four miles. 
middle of the lake, maybe three and a half miles. They are out of visual range. Even if you uh, take into account extra distance on the horizon by virtue that Jesus had gone up onto a mountain when the disciples set sail, what you can't take account of is that it would have been pitch black on top of the sea. And Jesus sees frustration on their faces from three and a half miles. Now, I'm telling you that because I want to point out something that you probably know here. But when you're in the middle of a storm, you forget it here. And we need to remember it here. God is not just great because nothing is too big for him. God is also great because nothing is too small for him. He cares about every detail of your life. I have a book with all the names of God in the Bible, and there are more than 400 names for him in Scripture. Each one reveals a different characteristic of God. One of those names is Jehovah Roy, which means the God who sees. And what that means is God will never say, what happened over there? I didn't even catch that. Nothing escapes his, his sight. He's never taken off guard. And I want to make sure you hear this. It's not only true to say that the God who loves you sees you. It is also true to say that the God who sees you still loves you. He sees everything you've ever done. He sees everywhere you've ever been. He sees you. And you need to know, he loves you. So somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, the Jews called it their second evening. It was during the fourth watch of the night. It's right before dawn when it's just darkest in the evening. They've been fighting a storm for a large part of the night. Undoubtedly, they're exhausted, they're cold, they're wet, and they see something on top of the lake coming towards them, but it's not in a boat. And I point that out just because John gives us the obvious. When he gives us that detail, he tells us that they were frightened. I, that's why they were frightened. Uh, in that day, they believed evil spirits lived in the water, so they assumed that what they saw coming toward them was a ghost or an evil spirit of some sort. And I can just imagine, as soon as that's pointed out, they all go into a panic. I mean, there's some fishermen in there, but there's also a tax collector. There's a money. I mean, there's just all kinds of people in the boat, and they start rowing in different directions, and they're screaming at each other, and the boat's going around in circles. And in verse 20, Jesus yells out to them, "Chill out!" You know, which is a loose translation uh, of the Greek. Literally, the Greek means take up hill, right? So uh, Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And the boat goes quiet. And the wind is, is still blowing. The waves are still going crazy, but there's no movement in the boat. And John says, he finishes this whole section, this whole miracle with these words. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And for the record, Jesus covered at least three and a half miles at an average walking pace of three miles an hour. This miracle took over 70 minutes. <laughs> it wasn't just a flash. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus do this? Do you think he couldn't have stood on shore and, and everything would have been okay if he just said the, the words and the wind and the waves would have died down or something could have, could, could he not have done that? If he had, what would not have happened? If he had done it that way, what would not have occurred? The disciples never would have known it was him, which is why I wanted to make sure you get this. Miracles that remind me that Jesus can do the impossible. 
Miracles remind me that's how great he is. There's nothing he can't do. It's the song that we sang just a little bit ago. And it's not just that he can do them, it's why he does them, which is this verse that we've looked at almost every week. John tells us at the end of his gospel that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John records seven leading up to the resurrection, and we know that there's way more than that. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus isn't just some other guy, that there's something different about him, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that if you will believe in his name, you will have life if you trust him. And so for some of us, your next step in your faith journey is about your stories of God because your stories and my stories of what God is doing in my life is what helps other people believe in him. Your stories help me believe in him. My stories help you believe in him. And so part of it is we have to be telling our stories. I don't know how many of you have read this one before. How many of you have read this story? You're familiar with this story? I'm looking, so you have to raise your hand. All right. Okay. I was curious. How many of you have read it maybe more than once? Okay. All right. All right. Some, some of us are fairly familiar with this story. So let me ask you a question. Why was Jesus walking on the water? And I know, I know what you're thinking. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. This is one of those tricky preacher questions. So don't say anything. Uh, Look at our verses. Obviously, he had sent his apostles on the cross and went up into the hills to pray. And when he was ready, evidently there were no boats. He must not have planned ahead. Kind of strange. Son of God, creator of the universe. Kind of let that one get by him. It was too far to go around the lake, so he took the shortcut and went right through. Is that why you think he's walking on the water? I don't don't think so either. I think he's walking on the water for the same reason thousand years before God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites. The same reason that a shepherd boy killed a giant. The same reason that Daniel could survive a night in a lion's den. The same reason Jesus turned water into wine and healed a government official's son and then healed a a 38-year invalid. Matthew 14 tells us this. In this story, what happened when Jesus got into the boat, those who were in the boats worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him because he could do the impossible. Isn't that why you worship God? Because he can do the impossible. That's why Jesus is walking on the water. He wants to remind these 12 and us today that he can do the impossible. But it's more than that. Look at Matthew. Uh, look at the verses from Matthew again. And we've already looked at this. Uh, but when you read this in John, does it seem like something's missing to you? Does it seem like there's part of this story. There's just something not here. Look at verse 32. It says, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Well, Jesus was the only one on the water in John. John doesn't talk about anybody else being on the water. Who's the they that climbs into the boat uh, when Jesus climbs into the boat? Look at Matthew again, beginning in verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Remember he said that a moment ago in, in John. Peter said, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water to you. And Jesus said, well, come on, right? Here's the rest. Miracles remind me that Jesus can do the impossible, and then he invites me to join him. I want to make sure you get this. He doesn't just do them. He invites us to be part of doing impossible things. 
I don't know if you know this mathematical equation or not. The density of water is one gram per cubic centimeters at four degrees Celsius. What that means is, quite simply, we sink when we stand on it, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just the long way of saying we can't walk on water. However, it's interesting to me, there, uh, there, are, uh, there are insects that can be supported. One is the water strider, or uh, known as the uh, pond, uh, what's it called, the pond skater. But there's another, the, in, the famous Jesus Christ lizard. Can, have you ever seen this? We found this video, so check this out. Watch the Jesus Christ lizard. This predatory reptile will help reveal the secret as it stalks the young basilisk. The basilisk is called the Jesus Christ lizard because it can walk, well, really run on water. It bicycles its hind legs and the tail becomes a counterweight. Shoof, and it's gone. And I love that thing. And I know some of you run like that. I'm not making fun of you. I'm sorry. Listen, when it comes to the human species, we're not well equipped for water walking. Now, if you could sprint 67 miles an hour, you could actually run on water. But the fastest recorded foot speed, does anyone know who it is? Usain Bolt, that's exactly right. 27.79 miles per hour. Reaching 67 miles an hour requires 15 times more energy than the human body is even capable of expending. It's impossible to walk on water. Does Peter join Jesus in doing the impossible? He does. For a moment. <laughs> he does. In Matthew 14, he writes, Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. So while Jesus invites us to join him in the impossible, Satan is going to remind you that you can't do it. You may, you may want to. It may look like a cool, fun thing to do, but you can't do it. I love the story. It happened back in 1870. The Methodist churches in Indiana were having their annual conference, and at one point, the president of the college where they were meeting addressed the group and told them that he thought they were living in an, an exciting age because he believed that they were coming into a time of great inventions, that he believed, for example, men would someday fly through the air like birds. Well, the bishop presiding over the conference, didn't think much of the statement. As a matter of fact, he called it heresy and said that the Bible says that flight is only uh, reserved for angels, and they would no longer talk about that at their conferences. So when Bishop Wright got home, he told his wife and two sons, Orville and Wilbur, about what the president had said and how impossible and ridiculous the idea of flight was. Listen, isn't that what happened with Peter? He went over the boat onto the water, and then he noticed the storm, the same storm that was blowing when he was in the boat. It's not a new storm. The same storm in the boat the same storm out of the boat. But I wonder if he gets out of the boat and he sees the wind and waves and he was reminded, I can't walk on water. I can't do this. And he started to do the impossible with Jesus and then he fell. I wonder how many times Jesus had call, has called you into something you knew was too much for you, but not too much for him. And Satan says to you, seriously, you better take into consideration the wind. 
Look at those waves out there. They're awful high. You best just stay in the boat. But you look out on the water, and Jesus is standing there with his eyes on you and his hand out, and he's saying, come on. You may fall, but you will not fail. And if you fall, I promise I will pick you up myself. And you know he will because he's already done it before in your lifetime. You've seen him do it in other people's lives as well. Listen, I just want to go back for a moment to when Jesus was on shore and saw his followers struggling. Again, that he could see them was pretty impressive. But why was he looking in the first place? Why was he watching his followers? Second Chronicles 16.9 may help us with this. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are not fully committed to him. He's looking not to watch you. He's looking to see if you, if you are fully committed to him, he wants to strengthen your heart. I don't know how you hear Jesus' words when Matthew tells this story in verse 31 when he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't, I don't hear anger. I don't hear disappointment. I kind of hear a little bit of pride, maybe a little excitement, like a parent teaching their child to ride a bike. Man, why did you stop pedaling? You had it, man. You had it. All you had to do was keep pedaling. And then he, you help them up, right? And you help them pedal again. You're not angry. You're not, you're not disappointed. And listen, it's because of this, I believe. Miracles remind me that Jesus believes in me. Miracles aren't just about us believing in Jesus. He wants to make sure that you know that he believes in you. Do you think he believed in Peter? Do, do, you think he, before, do you think before Peter ever got out of the boat that Jesus believed that in him and what he could do? Because I think he did. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know Peter would fall. It just means he believed in him anyway. So do you think Jesus believes in you? even knowing that you will fail him at times. Because I think he does. <laughs> and he is watching. But he's watching not to catch you failing. He's watching to strengthen your heart. <laughs> and so I just want to say, your next step in your faith, that being with Jesus isn't the safest place to be. It may actually be the most dangerous place to be at that moment in your life. But if you say yes to him and step out of the boat, you will go places and you will experience a life that you can't on your own. But if you're going to do that, you have to trust him enough to get out of the boat and do something you know you can't do by yourself. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you. You call us to a life that... Without you, we can't even imagine. It's, it, is, it is impossible without you. It's only possible with you. And God, we think about what, what we've seen you do in other people's lives. <laughs> and we kind of want that for ourselves. But it's kind of scary too. And so we pray as a church that we will, we will trust you with this. That we will rely on you. That when you call us out of the boat... But we see you walking in the water and then invite us out onto it as well. That we would at least be willing to take a step out of the boat. Maybe that's what propels Peter into leadership of the early church so much. He wasn't afraid to fail if he knew you were involved. And so God, we pray for that too. We think about our friends who, um, who don't know you. 
don't give you much of a thought. But around Easter time, they might consider hearing that story about you again. A story of hope that could change not just their lives, but change their eternity. That maybe this time it would catch. And what seems so impossible to us in our friend's life because they seem so far from you just might be possible with you. And so, God, we pray as a church that with our lives, with the lives of our friends, we would trust you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.